Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzama and with me today, of course, and we're spending another morning with uh, our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Hello, Glenn. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide as we travel through the healthcare galaxy each week looking for ways toward optimal health. <laughs> this was a special uh, time of the year. We have uh, Passover, and we have Easter, and we have Kuan Yin celebrations. A lot of very important things happening right now. So, Really? Wow. See, I'm being educated on more and more in my own culture. <laughs> I told you, know, you this, this show is always a mystery, you know. <laughs> you know, I always talk to you about um, medicine being such a frontier and why it was so great to go into medicine. For me, first of all, of course, I always talk about just learning about the body. That's always great. But there's also the technology that makes it a frontier. Uh, we're continuously developing new technology, which gives us deeper and deeper insights into, into what's happening down on cellular levels and energetic levels and a number of things. And uh, this is also a great part of the frontier. But another interesting part of the frontier uh, and challenge, of course, is the specialties in medicine. You know, if you had an eye problem now, you would first probably go to an optometrist to get your vision checked and then you might go to an ophthalmologist but then if it's deeper than that you have choices of a retinal specialist a neuro ophthalmologist a plastics ophthalmologist it's just fascinating mm. the different layers and levels of specialty as our technology teaches us more mm -hmm. but also um, our society sometimes dictates uh, some of the specialties that happen in medicine. In my field, I think in a way, emergency medicine, it, it really didn't exist on a special level that it does today, but there was a need for it because there are more and more of us and more critical things were happening. So the whole specialty of emergency medicine arise. And then starting my own field of uh, being a medical guide is another one. But today, we have a very special guest with us who is also in a new field of medicine, and I'm going to talk with my good friend, Dr. Joseph Frawley, about addiction and addictive addiction medicine. Hello, Dr. Frawley. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Christina. Joe, I would like to uh, give everyone, as I always do, sort of a medical guide view of what we're going to do today. So first, I always like to look at the personal aspect of my guest find out why you uh, were drawn in and how you were drawn in and when you were drawn in to the wonderful field of healing and then the directions that you took. So why don't you give us a brief description of your history? Okay, well, Glenn and Christina, I, um, I got involved in uh, uh, addiction medicine uh, really since I had family members who were alcoholics. Uh, my dad was a very severe alcoholic, fifth-a-day drinker, and when I was 16, uh, he got treatment and quit drinking, and um, that was a you know a very big thing in our family of uh, kind of seeing the changes that that brought. Later on, my brother uh, started getting into drugs when he was at the end of his high school year, and we 
intervened on him and got him off of that. And later on, I had a brother-in-law who had uh, alcohol and drug problems, and he got into treatment. So I really, you know, saw that uh, something affected me, you know, very deeply in my own family, and saw that people could get better. Although originally I didn't decide to go into medicine, I actually was fairly good at math and was going to be an electrical engineer. And then one wow. day, uh, one of my resident advisors said, you know, if you're going to be an electrical engineer, you should really go and see where you're going to be working. And so I went over to Hewlett Packard up in Palo Alto, and uh, uh, he was going for his interview for his job. He was a grad student. And uh, I walked in, and I, they showed me where I'd be working, and it was a huge football-sized stadium-type room full of cubicles. And I just looked at it, and I said, you know, I don't think I'm really going to do that. And uh, I think partly I don't think it was that great an electrical engineer, but I just didn't, you know, it kind of hit me in the gut. So I talked to my dad, and I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. And he said, well, you've been really interested in this addiction. And my dad was very pro-recovery. He was very much always talking to his house. So he got me very excited about it. And he said, you know, why don't you think about going to medicine? And maybe you can you know, pursue this and help other people. So that emotionally kind of uh, connected, and uh, my grades got better. I, you know, I just uh, really got very excited about it. And um, so when I pursued medicine, I was always pursuing it with the idea of getting involved with addiction. Mm-hmm. And then I had to pick a specialty, and I wasn't sure whether it should be psychiatry or internal medicine. But at that time, some internal medicine seemed to be a little more concrete. So I went into that, and um, but when I got out, I I became a medical director of the Schick Shadle Hospital in Santa Barbara, and that so it brought me up to Santa Barbara where I live, and that was back in 1979. And um, uh, so that's kind of how I got into it. You know, it's interesting uh, the way that sometimes we get great pieces of advice. Just that concept of someone saying to you, "Why don't you go see where you're going to work?" How that can yeah, change a person's life. I mean, I do that always with people now. Just, you, know, you want to be this, go, go check it out. So you had a very uh, interesting sort of double-edged uh, sword view of uh, addiction right away. You saw your father as an addict, but then you got the real benefit of seeing someone with an addiction actually get better. So I, I could see yeah. where that would spur you on. We're going to use that word a lot today, addiction. So I, I think it would be a good idea to lay some groundwork for people and give us a definition that you work with and that your colleagues work with. What are we talking about? Well, addiction is, is really a, a process where the, the brain adapts to a drug. And, uh, you know, when, when you're taking a drug, uh, the nervous system adapts to it. So the drug does something, but then the body also adapts to the presence of the drug. And some people, their nervous system adapts uh, by shutting down the normal system and basically shifting over to uh, expecting the drug to you know, keep things going. Uh, other people don't really adapt very much. Their, their system doesn't seem to get suppressed very much. Kind of the analogy I've used with people is just you know, if I go out in the sun, uh, I don't tan very well. My skin's not really going to adapt. I'm just probably going to burn. Someone else goes out to the same, same amount of sun, same reason we went out in the sun. But their skin gradually gets darker as, as they're out in the sun. 
and it's kind of the same process. It's the people who are susceptible to addiction, uh, their nervous system keeps adapting, and it starts taking more to get the same effect. And various circuits in the brain begin adapting to this, particularly those that are involved in survival, so that the sort of your primitive survival brain starts seeing the drug as something needed to survive. And when that happens, the full power of the survival brain will start seeking the drug. And that's where people go really out of control with their addiction, is that they no longer are regulating it through sort of their conscious control. It's sort of their, their survival brain is saying, you know, you need this. If you don't get it, we're going to put you in withdrawal, and you're going to feel bad. So that's kind of what we look at now as, as the basis of addiction that there's, there are genetic susceptibility factors that you inherit a kind of a nervous system. Some people inherit one that adapts, but some people inherit, you know, skin that, that tans beautifully, and some people inherit skin that just doesn't tan. And um, over time, that nervous system adapts. And then you can have sometimes uh, secondary problems, such as depression, anxiety, where uh, you're using the drug not only for just the reward effects that it gets, but also just to turn off uh, negative feelings. And that, again, can be either situational with grief or loss, uh, or it can be biochemical where a person has a biochemical imbalance that causes a depression. So those are kind of the, I think, the ways that we look at uh, addiction as a disease of the central nervous system. It's a disease of the central nervous system. It seems like there's a major component of um, mental process that goes with it. And you talk about drugs. Uh, my assumption is that it's really biochemistry that happens in, in the brain. Is that correct? Right. The, well, we, we have most of the drugs that are addictive only work because they mimic certain chemicals that the brain uses to carry survival information. What are and some of those drugs? For example, you, well, let's say if you take an opiate, it works because we have an endorphin system. What's it? Uh, explain an opiate for us, okay? Uh, okay, that's like uh, a Vicodin or heroin or methadone or Oxycontin, Dilaudid, Demerol. Uh, these are a lot of a lot of painkillers. Painkillers, exactly. Yeah, okay. A lot of painkillers, and um, and they work because they are able to mimic the normal endorphin system, and which is involved in pain regulation in the body. And they can stimulate that. And then some people, when they take it, uh, it produces a big feeling of reward. So sometimes that hooks them in that way. And also their nervous system adapts so that it shuts down their own endorphins. And they become dependent on the outside uh, drugs to keep things in balance. What are some of the other drugs that uh, you see in your office a lot or in your so clinic? The most common ones are nicotine. Um, and we have a nicotine receptors in our brain. Alcohol. Uh, alcohol is a drug that affects many different systems. Uh, then there's tranquilizers like Valium or Xanax or Clonopin. Um, marijuana, of course, is a very common addictive drug. And uh, uh, we have marijuana receptors in our brain. We actually make our natural marijuana in our brain. And marijuana works because it mimics that normal system. Um, we get into food addiction. Uh, some people, the, the uh, sugar is quite rewarding to them. Um, 
then you get the uppers, which are like the beads, uh, which is amphetamine, uh, that or cocaine. Uh, those are also addictive drugs. Um, even some people get into nitrous oxide, which is uh, something that uh, we use for anesthesia. But uh, uh, some people get dependent on that as well. What are some of the? Like I'm that? sorry. Go ahead, Christina. Sorry. How, how do they get hold of something like that, Dr. Crawley? Well, nitrous oxide. You asking about that? Yes. Well, um, it's actually available in certain cans of uh, uh, whipping cream cans, things like that. The part of the propellant is a nitrous oxide. Uh, so they find different uh, devices that use nitrous oxide as a propellant. And they, um, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they get rid of the, the whipped cream and inhale the the um, uh, the nitrous oxide. Propellant, yeah. Wow. It's fascinating, actually, so, to see the creativity of people today looking for various sources of uh, stimulation mm -hmm. in the drug world. Right. What's it's, the it's, what's uh, the uh, so, What's the newest drug that's out that people are getting addicted to? Well, there's something called Spice now, which is actually an artificial marijuana. Um, and um, uh, it uh, has very similar effects to marijuana, a little bit more hallucinogenic, but um, it's, it's quite similar to marijuana and uh, uh, stimulates the marijuana receptors in the brain, but it, it doesn't show up as marijuana in the urine because it's not derived from marijuana plants. And uh, there's something called Kratom now, which is an opiate mimicker. Uh, then you get into bath salts, which are are um, a substance that uh, is normally not for human consumption, but uh, can have a stimulant, hallucinogenic effect. Uh, so these are some of the newer things that have uh, sort of plagued the emergency room world. Uh, actually, uh, people are showing up more with baffling me now. This is becoming a mystery to me now. <laughs> did you, did I hear you correctly? Did you say bath salts? Well, they're called bath salts. They're, they're kind of a, really an uh, industrial chemical, but they have stimulating effects that are more like kind of a combination of hallucinogenic amphetamine, and um, you can get pretty sick on them. Um, but, you know, in a lot of those things and drugs have to do with fat, and, and um, uh, a lot of people who are seeking drugs are seeking to disconnect what they're feeling, and uh, they have a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurity, so if, if it's in now to be using bath salts, then I guess I have to use bath salts. If it's in now to use spice or marijuana or whatever, they're, a lot of times there's sort of people going with whatever the flow is, mm -hmm. and uh, so, you know, sort of the new style is to be doing this, but then, you know, I want to do that. So, um, sometimes that influences kind of what's, what's happening. In the uh, communities where I was working in emergency medicine, periodically we would see a new drug hit the streets or an old drug of a new type. So, you know, sometimes we would say, oh, there's a brown heroin that just hit the streets because we're seeing a number of people that are coming in having reactions to it or new drugs. Sometimes we didn't even know the names 
of what they were calling them on the street, and we had to figure out based on just symptoms at the time uh, and treat them before even knowing all of the things that people were doing. Joe, what was uh, your happiest moment in taking care of people that have addictions? I think the happiest moment is seeing somebody who's really at peace, um, who really said, you know, I just can't believe where I was before. Uh, you know, I didn't think I could change. I didn't think life could be different. You know, I was just talking to a guy the other day who had a very severe addiction, actually beat his dad up and you know, did all kinds of stuff. And um, he's been sober about five years now, and he said, I just can't believe how better it is and how different it is. It's just, you know, um, I was so brainwashed. You know, this is what I had to do, and, and for what? You know, but at that time, you know, it seemed like that's what he had to do, and he's, he's just very happy in his recovery. And um, you know, we, were just, we were just talking about he's got a great relationship with his family now, and, uh, and so I think that's really you know what you, you know, what the reward is is just seeing people come out the other side and, and feel better and realize they don't have to feel good by poisoning themselves. Mm. What's your uh, What's your saddest moment? Oh, well, the saddest moment is really having to talk to a family member after someone has died uh, of an overdose or an accident or something. They were struggling with addiction, and uh, and they didn't make it. And uh, then you got to go and talk to the family. And that, you know, losing a child in particular, and this is often a, a sort of younger people um, in terms of the overdoses and stuff like that. And um, you know, going to talk to a parent about their child who's died is a very tough um, situation. And um, I think uh, you know that's that's really the, the hardest thing. I've, you know, sometimes you see people older who they die of the cirrhosis, and there's nothing to be done. Um, you know, too much damage has been done. Um, the one guy who I just talked to had. Uh, Hepatitis C, and he was drinking alcohol, and that's the formula for getting a liver cancer, a combination of those two. So he finally developed a liver cancer, and he was going to go get a transplant, and he said, no, his cancer progressed too far. He said, you're not a transplant candidate. So that was pretty tough uh, hmm. to talk to him about that. I, I used to have to do the same thing again in the emergency department when a child or a parent would overdose and die and I would have to go and speak with the family members. It was never pleasant, but it was always, uh, yeah, it was very tough. I want to go into, uh, how to recognize addictions in family members. I then want to talk about treatment programs, but I also, I want to go from a different point of view. I want to start Normally, I would talk about kids first because, you know, prevention for me is always a big thing. So how do we prevent kids from being addicted? But I, w- I want to go in a different direction first to develop a case for how addictions affect everyone and then maybe come back to work our way towards children. Let's take a normal situation where maybe 30, 40 years ago, uh, 
someone had difficulty sleeping or they had pain from their job. They wanted to keep working. They tried some over-the-counter things. Uh, friends gave them things. They eventually went to their physician, and their physician gave them something. And over a period of time, they developed tolerance or their behavior adapted, and they needed more and stronger. A usual process that we've all seen. And now, 30 to 40 years later, they're on these medications. They're medical you know, prescription medications. They're not street drugs, but these people have addictions that they've had for a lifetime, and then they have to make this difficult decision of, what do I do now? Do I get off this? Do I stay on it? Do you work with people like that? Yeah, I, I work with that a lot. Um, I think it it is difficult because they're they're so used to having uh, you know this drug as the thing that helps balance them. I think it depends on, first of all, what the mechanical issues are. Sometimes with chronic pain, some people have some uh, things that it does that cause chronic pain. And um, uh, they just have to be on the medicines. But the ones who are okay, it doesn't seem to impair them. The real issue is when they get impaired, where they can't control. And usually that's because they're using the medicine not only for the pain management, but also to manage anxiety or depression or stress. And that their coping skills to manage that um, are very poor. And what happens is one of the major causes of tolerance is anxiety. Uh, the, usually with chronic pain, that over the years, I have people with bad arthritis, they take their excellent pain pills, but it never changes. They're, they've been, they're 90 years old, they're still using the same dose they were using you know, 10, 15 years ago. But they don't use it for anxiety. It's their ability to cope with anxiety and deal with stress is not related to the medication. They, they have the cognitive process to do that. People get into trouble are people who, when they feel these things, they don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to respect them. They don't know how to manage them. And so they take the medicine to turn it off. But the problem is that the part of you that is upset or angry uh, doesn't like to be told to shut up. And that's kind of what the medicines do. They basically are saying, shut up, we don't want to hear about it. So that part of you pushes harder. And so now you need more medicine to shut it up, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. And that's really what recovery is about, is really about going from rejection of what's there to respecting what's there. And that's a lot of what you're doing in, in recovery work. Um, so you sometimes you have people who have some pain, um, now, sometimes we switch into a drug called Suboxone now, which has much less mental um, impairment compared to the full uh, uh, painkillers or full active painkillers like Vicodin. Sometimes I shift into that and they feel like they're mentally much clearer. Their, their opiate dependence is stabilized, their pain is stable, but they're not as foggy with that. And then they have to continue to work on how they deal with uh, various feelings that are coming up for them. And um, the other hand, sometimes um, what we do is we put them through a, a slow taper uh, detox. And you know, recently with Whitney Houston and uh, with uh, Michael Jackson, I've, I've had people, I have somebody in the hospital now who just came in and said, this made my family just too worried about what's going on. You know, we just see these people dying of overdoses. And yeah, I've got some pain, but maybe I should try to get off this stuff and you know, to see if I can manage it in a different way because 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to die. I don't want to take too much one day or have an accident. So, um, often what, in fact, some of the programs I, I run is, is a, it's called a, a dual or triple diagnosis program, which is for people who have addiction, have depression, and have chronic pain, and they're trying to find a way to balance, um, what they're feeling. And they've, They've been sent to me because they were taking too much painkiller, but they've got bad back pain, and but maybe you know there's there's stresses that they don't know how to deal with, so their responsibility is just to take more medicine to deal with their stress, and then they get into trouble. So um, a lot of times, one of the things we do is is work on issues of boundaries. It's just how do you set boundaries? You know, let's say you've got family that always wants you to do things, but hard for you to say no. If you've got a back problem, if you overdo it, and now you're hurting more. Um, a lot of times, uh, what we're working on is saying, you know, you can set boundaries, you have some ways to do it. And yes, you need some medicine for your pain, but you've got to develop other ways to cope with the other stresses that are going on. And um, so sometimes that part is part of it. Sometimes, as the case for lady now, she wants to detox off. She has some pain, she says that. I really want to find some other ways to manage that. I don't want to be on uh, opiate painkillers to do that. And um, so I don't know if that helps answer your question, but those are some of the issues that are going Yeah, I think it does. Thinking about the uh, the triple process of a pain, an arthritis, a medication, uh, depression, that, that seems like there's a lot of people somewhere in that world right now and it, it can't be easy for them it's good that there are programs out there let's go let's move backward for a few moments to a person who just injures themselves for the first time it's a young adult and they start on medication and what do they have to do as they're being healed from their medication and how does the doctor have to work with them to prevent this from becoming that 30 to 40 year program that they suddenly find themselves on? How does somebody work with uh, opiates and other medications to get through a process and then get over it and past it without becoming an addict? That's a really great question. And I think, well, first of all, you know, and, and our orthopedic professor said he would never let an orthopedic surgeon operate until they'd taken the social history of the patient. Of course, that would frustrate all of our orthopedic residents because their their focus was to put things back together and really want to go through a long history. But he said, you know, it's no deal, no big deal to break your toe unless you're the place kicker for the ramp. Hmm. He said, you need to know what the impact of that injury is on that person, and because that uh, is going to be a major thing that you may have to deal with. Um, you know, if that person's a penis and they broke their finger, that's, that's not a minor injury. That may be their livelihood. That's going to create a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety uh, of what's going to happen. And maybe, uh, as sometimes happens, uh, that expertise is the only thing that they feel good about or that they have confidence in. So you suddenly create a real situation of high anxiety when something like that happens. So you have to think about that uh, what's the impact on this person. Um, just to give you an example, sometimes I've seen people who are actors or, or athletes who make their living with their body. And um, 
in some ways, you know, it's it's sort of like the Peyton Manning thing. It's like, you know, uh, here's a guy who's had three or four surgeries on his neck, and he's thinking that maybe it's a good idea to have a 300-pound tackle knock him down. You know, um, you know, he's really tied to that occupation. So um, that's the first thing you have to look at. What's the impact? What, what's being injured here? What's the impact on the person? Is that going to create a lot of emotional stuff that's going to go on? You need to address that. Uh, the second thing is that if a is there any depression or anxiety that's going on parallel to this? Uh, do they have already an underlying anxiety disorder, depression? Third, have they had a history of chemical dependency problems? Have they had maybe they're a recovered alcoholic who hasn't drunk for four years, but now you know broke his leg, he's gone painkillers. He has a nervous system that very easily adapts to these types of drugs. So you have to really develop a structure for him. Uh, often, for example, if I have somebody in recovery who says, yeah, I need a rotator cuff surgery and uh, I need to um, you know, have surgery, right? And the guy who just an orthopedic surgeon about three or four months ago who came and said, I've got a guy who's in recovery from opiate dependence. And he needs back surgery. He's going to have to, you know, have a fusion. He's really in too much pain. And um, so we had to just work with him. We had to increase his, his recovery activity, uh, monitor things for depression, anxiety, uh, and be very carefully monitor his medicine just weekly doses. And also not PRN doses. Just you get your medicine every few hours and every few hours, and that's just what you do. There's no extra medicine. And he just turned his, his pills into me last week and said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm back. And um, you know, I don't need these anymore for my pain, and uh, I need to go on my recovery. So he needed a lot of structure to support him you know, with them. Seems like uh, structure is a very important part of this. Let's move to uh, children for a moment and prevention. It seems like in everything that you're saying to me and everything that I read about addiction, Sometimes it's hard for me to figure whether it's the hard wiring uh, in the brain uh, with the genetic part that you talked about, but also there are mental components that drive people necessarily to either uh, novelty or thrill-seeking and things like that. How do we start working with children before they, before they develop the... Uh, the process that will lead them towards drugs. Do we have to, we talk about child-proofing a house, you know, with electrical things that, and things higher up, but how do we child-proof a house for, uh, to prevent addiction? Well, I think that, um, you're right, you can't do much about the genetics, but, you know, I feel like saying, well, how do you prevent skin cancer with a kid who does, you know, can't? Um, you know, one of these try to keep out of the sun, um, put sunblock on them, make sure they wear a hat. Um, you know, uh, you could move to Canada, and you could do all, all sorts of things, but uh, there's, there's certain genetic things that are just there. But separate from that, um, we don't really monitor emotional development of children the same way we do. Like, my, my wife's a third grade teacher, and so at, at third grade of the first year, they have standard nationalized tests. So, you know, there's standard scoring for math, for reading, for writing, for spelling. Parents are terrified that where's my child now? Are they in, you know, 
where they would do standardized tests. But the emotional development, we really don't, um, you know, monitor it that carefully. It's really kind of left up to sort of random variables about how you set boundaries, how you deal with anger, how you deal with depression, how you deal with grief, um, how you communicate. Um, but those are skills that are very important, and and how you deal with those things changes at different stages of development. And um, and in particular, dealing with anger is one of the most important ones of how you set boundaries. It's very different at different stages of development. But if you don't develop that, um, you can very easily get into anxiety disorders. And um, particularly when you transition from, you know, your childhood, basically you're safe because you're attached to your parents. When you go into adolescence, you get safe because you're attached to your peer group. And um, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of change because if you think about what it takes to be safe at age 13, it's different than when you're 16, and that's different than when you're 19, and that's different when you're 22. Almost every three years for an adolescent, they're having to develop and add on a new app, if you will, for how they are going to feel safe and how they deal with various stresses and how they connect to other people. And so there's a lot of anxiety with that, and, and these drugs are very good at turning off anxiety. But as you do that, you also don't develop the skills to manage anxiety. So um, one of the things I would say is that uh, the parent really has to keep constantly communicating with the child about their development. Where are you and how are you managing mm. you know, stress, anxiety, relationships, uh, and uh, really help them. And this is converse of this is just really why we are so aggressive about child abuse, because the impact of child abuse is just devastating in terms of the coping skills of the individual and uh, their cognitive, how they cognitively look at themselves and the world. So um, I would say the biggest part is, is really monitoring that child's development in terms of how they manage anxiety and stress, grief, you know, set boundaries, communicate. Uh, those are very important skills, and and skills develop on previous skills, just like in math, you know, you get basic arithmetic, and then you've got to go to algebra, and then from algebra you might go on to physics or calculus. But if you never get algebra, you're never going to go higher. The, the, the basic math skills just aren't aren't good enough to do physics problems and higher higher types of problems, and that's kind of what happens with emotional disorders, particularly anxiety, is that the person's coping skills are still fairly primitive, but life gets more complicated and they get overwhelmed with that. And so a lot of what we do in the recovery program is really teaching uh, a lot of new coping skills. Uh, that almost like some people go back to city college and have to learn, you know, how to write essays because now they're in a job where they they need to, um, you know, communicate with reports and things like that. And they don't have those skills, so they have to go back and get them, and a lot of times that's what they end up doing. Let's talk about, um, that was a really good answer. I, I appreciate that. <clears throat> there are many programs out there. There's individual programs with a single doctor. We all have heard about 12-step programs in many different areas, which uh, I've seen uh, very helpful for many, many people. We see places where there's advertisements where you have to come and go away for a weekend or six months and 
take over. All of these different treat treatment programs are options for people. How does someone decide what's best for them and what's your feeling on each of them? Well, I think that the reason for that is you have to individualize treatments, you know, for people uh, in almost any area of medicine. And um, some people uh, are not able to detox on their own. They, they need some structure. They're, they need a lot of medication to help them through the detox process. Um, some people behaviorally are very impulsive. They need to be in a structure that's going to keep their focus uh, on recovery, uh, prevent kind of impulsive uh, relapses until they've developed enough skill uh, to maintain themselves. Um, and some people have very little support uh, when they go into recovery. Some people have a lot of support. Um, uh, so I think the programs are, uh, just in terms of the level of care, the structure depends on how much impulsivity, how much outside structure does the person need, how much medication management do they need. And I think this is really where uh, your physician or an experienced counselor uh, can talk to somebody and say, you know, I think based on what you told me, this is the level of care that you need. And then in terms of what you learn in, in that level of care, maybe about your coping skills, um, you know, the um, there's something called the serenity prayer. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's quite a popular thing in the 12-step world, uh, which says, God grant me the serenity to accept things I can't change, courage to change things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And in that are some very important principles that, uh, have to do with how you manage stress. And and sometimes um, you have to respect there's nothing else you can do. How do you know that, that it's okay to say that? Sometimes you have to change, and that's scary. You need help in that change. And then how do you know how to do that? So a lot of programs um, are focused on that. Um, did a connection with Stone County. Um, uh, focus on on really those two things: developing a spiritual focus that says, um, you know, I I can't be the higher power, um, and um, uh, if I make myself a higher power, then I'm putting on myself a lot of pressure to be perfect, to fix everything, to be in charge of everything, and I need to find a way that I can respect myself uh, without that or can't make other people my higher power. I can't say I'm okay as long as Mary loves me or Bob loves me. Or, um, I need to find something else that uh, I get my value from rather than just something as fragile as a human being. And so that's one part of recovery is kind of on the spiritual side. The other side has to do with some very practical skills of how do I set boundaries, how do I deal with anxiety, how do I... Um, look at uh, the way in which uh, I screen uh, the world. And, um, you know, like if I was giving this talk, how perfect do I have to be? How much, you know, what's, what's okay for me to be? Um, so I think those are, are things that people need. Sometimes people have a lot of craving and uh, they need uh, help in dealing with the craving. Um, 
craving can be triggered by internal feelings uh, that they um, they get very anxious or upset, and the only thing they know how to do is to take the drug to turn it off. And it's something like going to England and learning to drive. You know, you, you're in an emergency, you tend to pull the car to the right-hand side of the road, but in England, that kills you. And so they have to relearn uh, some basic ways of self-soothing and calming themselves. Sometimes the, trig- the, the cravings are triggered by who they're with, the people, place, and activities. Um, uh, they have to often just get away from the, the kind of whole associations that they had before. We, we know that uh, some research studies that just going to a place where you previously drank or used, your body actually sort of physically gets ready to use. It's sort of like Pavlovian dogs are salivating, you know, with the bell. It becomes a very difficult uh, feeling to counteract. Some people need aversion. They they go and get it. Actually, they'll drink and get uh, sick at the same time just to develop a a negative emotional memory about the drug because they've got too much positive association. Some people get put on antibuse so that if they think about drinking, they say, oh, well, I'm just going to get sick, so I won't do it. Um, So there are a variety of, of treatment approaches that are used in different programs to help different aspects of the addiction. And again, I think uh, that's working with somebody who has experienced addiction, uh, either a physician or experienced counselor, um, to kind of direct the program. Uh, uh, And then I think even at Carroll, we get into what are called dual diagnoses, where we have someone who may have ADD or they have uh, attention deficit disorder, they may have uh, depression or panic disorder, and they need some treatment that specifically addresses both conditions in parallel with their addiction. Otherwise, um, you may not do well because you're not addressing the whole person. Where do you, uh, where do you see uh, alternative theories, therapies, herbal medication, meditation, acupuncture, uh, stress reductions, uh, healthy diet, uh, exercise, stress management? Where do you fit that into your program, or do you? Well, I think that actually we, we use a lot of those things. Um, you know, first of all, herbal, as far as my mind, an herb is, is a drug or a meditation. It's something that you're taking to chemically alter the body. It may be healthy, it may be unhealthy like any other drug. Uh, I think that um, you know, marijuana is an herb, opiates are herbs. There, there are all kinds of, of things that are there. And I think um, we have to be really careful about whatever is put in the body uh, to make sure that it's providing help rather than hurt. Um, I think that things like yoga are, are extremely helpful to many people. Uh, they're, they provide real calming and relaxation, both physically and mentally. Uh, I've used that with a lot of chronic pain patients, people with anxiety. Uh, sometimes just a swimming program is very helpful. Uh, to some people, that carry a lot of tension in their body, and they just find if they go and swim every day, it releases that tension. They just low impact, uh, you know, they can do that. Um, the uh, I think with anxiety, you know, there's there's sort of the physical fight or flight um, readiness that um, gets stored up in your body, and then there's the the mental part of 
how am I going to be safe? And um, sometimes you have to be careful about exercising um, to totally deal with anxiety because it will help with the physical tension. But if you just exercise to deal with the mental part, you end up sometimes overdoing it. So you have to address both mentally how you feel safe as well as deal with the physical tension that's built up. Um, meditation is very helpful to many people. And there's a component of meditation that allows you and gives you permission not to react. And, and that, again, gets into kind of the spirituality part of I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be the higher power for everything in the universe. I can observe and not feel like I've got to fix it all. And, and that's a very important, whether it's fixing internally or externally, um, an important skill. Um, do you use acupuncture? Acupuncture. You know, I, I have used some acupuncture. I've, I've, some people will find it helpful, some don't. I, I don't find it very predictable. I don't discourage people from it, but some people find it very helpful, some don't. But that's true for medicine. It's true for almost anything else in medicine. So um, That's true. That's uh, true. Keep an open mind to it is what I would suggest. I see... Uh, you know, we talk about drug addictions and things like that, but I wonder, sometimes it seems like people, because emotions are also about neurotransmitters and biochemistry, I see people sometimes that I wonder if they don't have emotional addictions, even if they're not on a medication. They they go into rage reactions a lot, or they get sad at various times, and I wonder sometimes if there can be emotional types of, of addictions. And I also look at other things like physical addictions. I remember once watching the Summer Olympics many years ago, and there was a woman uh, marathoner who was after at the end of the marathon coming in the last 50 yards or something. Her body was almost lost in terms of muscular and coordination. She appeared to be uh, completely dehydrated and out of it and could barely cross the finish line. And I wondered at that moment if even that exercise process is an addiction. Your thoughts on it? Well, oh, yeah. Well, I think that's what I was saying earlier is that um, some people, you know, when they have a high degree of anxiety and they exercise, they feel kind of a relief of the, of the uh, anxiety. Uh, they can focus away from the stress. They can release the physical tension that builds up. But um, if really they don't know how to feel safe, or they, they're really uh, very worried about something, and they just try to use exercise as a way to distract from it, then uh, they often can overdo the exercise. And so you have to look at help them look at both the, the process of mentally, how do I feel safe, as well as releasing the tension that builds up. Now, of course, you have what are called process addictions, which uh, get into gambling or, or sexual addiction or um, you know, pornography, um, maybe even you know, video games, where there's something that you do that gives you a positive feeling or distracts you from stress, what they call attention reduction, that just when I do this, I don't feel my tension. And... Um, and there's some reward attached to it. So that can be it. Certainly gambling is a, a very addictive process. And uh, where, for some reason, the excitement uh, of, of spending on gambling and wagering creates some sort of feeling of uh, 
reward or stimulation for them, and um, uh, and then when they lose, there's some uh, negative feelings, and then a feeling I've got to go back and recoup my way in the winnings and get back and and um, you know borrow more money. And uh, so um, I was just uh, listening to the history of uh, Mr. Wynn, who owns one of the casinos, and his dad apparently had a very severe addiction to gambling, which I was surprised about that. But um, the uh, so I think there, are, you know, those are addictive. For some people, are addictive as well. And again, maybe part of it's biochemical. Part of it is, you know, trying to distract from negative feelings um, as well. We always we always talked about the. Uh phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you mentioned drugs and sex as addictions. Please tell me that rock and roll is not an addiction. <laughs> I need to be clear on that. In some way, but it's certainly pretty exciting. Um, the, um, you know, it's, it, it's um, most people, you asked about the core of addiction, you know, what, how do we define it earlier? It really is about loss of control. It's it continued use despite loss of control. I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with you know sitting down and watching a baseball game, but if that's all you want to do and you're ignoring everything else, um, and you know no one you can't talk to anybody, all you want to focus on that, then you know it kind of looks like an addiction. It looks like you know now this is taking over your focus. You're not paying attention to. You know anything else that's going on? Your other needs aren't being met, and that's kind of what, what an addiction is: is where it, it, it takes over the primary reward system. And um, so, again, some people have a couple of drinks at night, but they, you know, they it doesn't take control. And they, they enjoy it; it wears off, and they're back at normal. Other people, um, they aren't able to do that, and, and I think that's really at the core of about the addiction. So I guess coming back to rock and roll, if, if all you do is rock and roll 24-7, maybe it could be Still a- not an addiction. I still don't see that as an addiction. <laughs> do, we, do we all have basically an addictive personality and we just have to have some control of it on certain levels? I mean, I'm thinking about that, but I also think about someone who does obsessive compulsive behavior where they're continuously washing their hands all day. It's not that harmful, but it cut, it takes over their life. Is that also an addiction? Not really. Um, well, we don't, at least we don't diagnose it as an addiction. We diagnose it as an obsessive compulsive behavior. Usually what drives you is anxiety, and the person has learned that certain behaviors temporarily will reduce their sense of anxiety. So if I have a lot of anxiety, and let's say a fear of germs and stuff, and I wash my hands, Temporarily, I feel okay, I'm okay now. I'm rearranging things, I get it all organized, and I feel a sense of calm. So that that tends to reinforce it, but it's really responding to some internal anxiety. And um, the uh, it's, it's not usually that much of a euphoric experience. It's more of a, an anxiety-reducing experience. They don't usually describe much of a high or that kind of thing with it. So it tends to be kind of put into different categories, just an anxiety disorder um, category, but not so much an addiction. Although, in some ways, it looks like addiction because it's repetitive behavior, but it's not really uh, at the same level of 
low, I don't know, tolerance dependent um, uh, rewards, you know, euphoria type of stuff. Although certainly can take over people's lives. In the uh, in the realm of uh, magical medical tour, we always ask our special guests if they have any pearls of wisdom or tips for us based on experience that no one else knows about. I'm sure in your field or practice, you have some things you can tell us that would be helpful as we move forward. Well, I think that um, probably the most important thing about addiction is to think about addiction as a chronic illness. I think that um, even when I first got into it, you know, I, I didn't really, I thought it was something that you'd be, you'd have a problem and then it would kind of go away and you didn't really have to worry about it. You know, you kind of were taking care of it. And um, we now think of addiction really more as like diabetes or hypertension, something you're going to have to take care of for the rest of your life. Or if you don't, it can come back and bite you. And um, I think that's maybe one of the first things, just to uh, emphasize that. Um, the second thing is that um, uh, I wrote down something here, and I'm, I'm just going to remember the things that you asked me to, to talk about this, and I'm trying to find where I put it, but, oh yeah, okay, I think that, um, again, structure, you know, the, the, the more um, severe the addiction, the more structure uh, you're going to be, you're going to need, and there was a very famous study done by a guy named George Valen called The Natural History of Alcoholism, which um, I think really... Uh, was um, a landmark work in this field, and he followed people for 50 years who had addiction. And one of the things he said is that the more problems the person is willing to go through uh, to drink, um, uh, the more treatment they're going to need uh, to stop drinking. So he gave an example. He said, if, if someone stops drinking, you said, what happened? And they said, well, you know, I, I fell down the stairs. And I said, you know, I'm not going to drink anymore. Um, and you say, well, how much treatment did they need? Um, didn't need any. They, they really didn't go to A. They didn't uh, get hospitalized. For them, that one event was enough to say, eh, why would they risk falling down the stairs for this stuff? But if you had somebody who'd fallen down the stairs at multiple ER admissions, multiple accidents, gone through divorce, uh, lost their job, and still drinking, it tells you how important that drug is to them, how powerful it is to, you know, despite all these problems, that uh, they were still going to continue to drink. It tells you how much a hold it had on them. And those are the people who needed intensive AA, intensive hospitalization, structure, long-term programs. So, um, Second thing is you, you kind of look at the number of problems a person has before they're willing to thinking about stopping. It tells you how much structure they're going to need uh, to recover. And then um, the third thing is that one of the things that once people do recover, 
and they get into the car, you should say, they, they want the family to be okay. They want their family to not worry anymore. And they spend a lot of energy in trying to convince the family they're now okay. And when I said to them, you know, I used to do this. I used to send family home negative drug tests, negative breathalyzers, trying to reassure the family. And um, it had absolutely no effect on the family's fear. Um, and what I realized is that you can't control the family's fear. Uh, they have their fear, and that's going to be there independent of what you do. Pretty much when I said to him, suppose your wife had breast cancer, and she said, you know, don't worry about it. Well, you're, you're going to worry about it. It's, it's not something that you're going to say, okay, you told me not to worry, I'm not going to worry. Um, you're going to worry, and you're going to worry in proportion to how much you care and how much you've invested in that person. So I'm really trying to emphasize to people to not get invested in their family, uh, you know, not worry anymore, feeling okay, everything's going to be fine, because it won't happen. And um, sometimes it drives them crazy trying to get them. When are they going to be not worrying anymore? And I said, well, it might take years. You know, that's why they have Alan on, really, is, is to help the family deal with their own recovery. Christina, um, yes. any thoughts? Well, I'm addicted to this addiction medicine. It's like <laughs> I could uh, stay on this line and, and have Dr. Crawley continue on and on. It's it's quite amazing, all the different areas that you've shared with us today. Um, and and uh, I think what's very interesting is, is also thank you so much for sharing with um, the families. Uh, really, it's, it's about honoring... As, as you say, their fears that they, they also have after they've seen some, some uh, incidents possibly happen. So I think that's, that's important. Right. They, they, they're terrified of what's going to happen. And, mm-hmm. and, and one of the interesting things in AA is to say, well, we're only sober one day at a time, which mm-hmm. in one sense would drive panic into the family. I mean, I'm, I, you're only going to be sober today. What about tomorrow? I don't know. I might be drinking tomorrow. I might not be. Uh, that's a terrifying prospect for someone to live with. It's like mm-hmm. a sword of Damocles over their head. Um, that, uh, you know, yeah, I guess he could. He could walk out tomorrow, go down the bar and, and drink or use or whatever. Um, so there is a lot of anxiety, and it, it doesn't go away, you know, rapidly. It, it's there for a while. And I emphasize to people to talk about how you deal with your own fear. Mm-hmm. Your fear of, re- of a relapse, how do you do it? And because um, I think it would be the same thing if the wife had the breast cancer. She says, well, look, I'm not really worried about it. I'll go back next year and it'll be fine. That increases your anxiety. And the other hand, if you say, look, I'm concerned also, and I'm going to get my mammogram and I'm getting this test and look at it, you know, then, so the more in the sense that the addict says he's afraid of it and is dealing with it, the better it helps the family's anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it's really comes back to communication, doesn't it? Well, every person, two foundations in relationships are communication and respect. Mm-hmm. And um, the, you know, the yin-yang is a very nice symbol of that because the boundary keeps changing and you keep having to communicate across the boundary as to where it is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then the relationship tends to break down. And so I use that example quite a bit in talking about relationships is that um, 
in the yin and yang, you, you have um, the issue of control and, and no control. There's areas you control and areas you don't control. And then there's a boundary, and that boundary is a kind of respect between the two, but they're not the same. But also the area where the communication has to keep occurring, because the more the boundary shifts, the more communication you have to have. And um, I sometimes use the example of a baseball, where you have two pieces of leather, and to keep them together, you have to have nice, tight stitching across the two pieces to keep it together. Lovely. I like I like that uh, that symbol of the yin yang. How you used it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Crowley. Well, I am uh, grateful to my special guest, Dr. Joseph Frawley, for uh, sharing his wisdom and expertise with all of us. I would like to also thank all of uh, my teachers and all of the people that have helped in my healing. I look forward to getting together with all of you uh, next week as uh, we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And in the meantime, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Dr. Frawley. And uh, we will see everyone next week. And for me, I'll see everyone tomorrow. All right. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot.